Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin here with our summer podcast intern, Nico. Say hello, Nico. Hello. And today we also have the great pleasure of having Andrew Himes. I'll be introducing him shortly. Uh, we're going to be talking about embodied carbon, also known as upfront carbon or even the upfront carbon burp. To start this out, I'm going to do, uh, do an interesting question, what I hope is an interesting question. Is a building more like a river or a rock? What do you guys think? And you, you don't get the answer, answer yet, Andrew. I bet you know. So if you're if you're listening to this podcast, I think you know you're you're, you're undoubtedly a self selected group of people that thinks a lot about homes and buildings, and there is so much to think about. And this is such an impactful area of what we're doing in society to help us move toward you know a place of thriving. Let's say. So when you think of a building, do we see them accurately? Do we do we perceive them accurately? And the answer really is probably not. Um, you know, a home, a home or a building, it's a physical object. It seems to be just sitting there. But that's a distorted perception, kind of in two ways, right? Like from the enclosure perspective, the enclosure is constantly and dynamically mediating heat, air and mass flow or moisture flow. But the real riddle here is that the building represents a snapshot in time of a vast interconnected system of of resource production, you know, production produced by the planet Earth, you know, followed by what we do as humans, we, we extract the resources, we harvest the resources, if they're lumber, processing, transportation, installation, boom, now we have a building. So it seems to be just sitting there is actually just like more like a river flowing by you and all the materials in that building had carbon flowing into them, we flow more operational carbon into them. And what's interesting is within the AEC, that's the architecture, engineering and construction industry, we routinely talk about things like EUI, energy use intensity. But there's like a prefix, like a missing adjective on the E in EUI. And that prefix is it, that's operational energy use intensity. Um, and today we're going to be talking about the other boot to drop, the other important energy use or energy input of the building, which is upfront energy, embodied energy. Okay, but first I'm gonna introduce the speaker. I'm really honored to have you here, Andrew. Thank you so much. I've had the great good fortune of getting to talk to him to set up this interview. And I know him as a deeply thoughtful and caring person, also extremely talented and extremely busy um, and productive. I could say it that way, doing what he can to accelerate industry and, and societal transformation. And you'll hear more about society when I get into his... Uh, bio here. So Andrew is the director, Andrew Himes is the director of collective impact at the Carbon Leadership Forum at the University of Washington. And he's working on collective impact initiatives to reduce embodied carbon emissions in the built environments, including building materials, building design, construction, and retrofits. He also hosts the NGO Government Roundtable on Embodied Carbon, which explores opportunities for collective action to reduce embodied carbon manages strategic communications for the Carbon Leadership Forum, uh, 
and supports CLF, Carbon Leadership Forum's online community and network of regional hubs. It goes on and on. I think I'm actually going to skip a few. So in 1987, Andrew founded, was the founding editor of MacTech, still a leading Apple technology journal. He also co-founded Microsoft Developer Network and led the first web development project at Microsoft in the 90s. Wow. He's also the founding executive director for the Charter for Compassion International in the 2000s and the author of The Sword of the Lord, The Roots of Fundamentalism in, the American, in an American Family and was executive producer and author of a 2004 documentary, Voices in Wartime. He's also on the steering committee for the MEP 2040 challenge, which is where I met him. He's also an accomplished juggler and an all around fine human being. Andrew, did I miss anything? Would you like to uh, introduce yourself further? Wow. Well, Christoph, I'm like, kind of, <laughs> I'm kind of intimidated by myself. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly where to go with that. I'm going to have to rush outside and go juggle to settle myself down, I think. But I'm really delighted to be with you today. And, um, and this feels like, to me, the most important work that we can be doing to address this global crisis that is so vast and also an opportunity for some extraordinary innovation and, and an opportunity to create creative solutions that actually help us to build a better planet for a much more equitable and just community as well. So I'm just yeah. grateful for this opportunity to talk about it with you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I agree completely that the depth and breadth of this topic is going to ripple out beyond our lifetimes, way beyond this podcast, but hopefully we can accelerate it or nudge it forward. So the first topic we, we wanted to go into is basically just an introduction to embodied carbon in buildings. Could you kick that off? No, so I was, uh, Christoph, I was really intrigued by your question about whether a building is more like a rock or a river. And mm -hmm. I have to confess that for most of my life, my sense of buildings were that they were rocks, that they were, you built something and it was there and then you lived in it or worked in it or it was just there. And uh, mm -hmm. it was six years ago that I met Kate Simonin at the at the Carbon Leadership Forum, who was our founder and is as uh, and is our direct executive director as well, and a professor of architecture and engineering at the University of Washington. And Kate wrote a book titled Life Cycle Assessment, which I have here. Life Cycle Assessment is kind of um, it's a it's both an in-depth look at what is life cycle assessment, what does it mean, and how does it fit into the challenge of reducing the carbon burden that we place on, on the planet. So life cycle assessment is kind of, it is the dynamic picture of a building, all the way from ex the extraction of materials, the manufacture of, of the raw material into materials that can be used, um, used in buildings, and then the transportation of those materials, the, the, the creation of the building. And as, as you said, most of, most of what we think of as embodied carbon is actually upfront carbon, meaning, as you mm -hmm. said, it's, it's uh, the carbon footprint of the building before anybody begins using it. And about 10% yeah. of it is, um, is the carbon footprint of all of the ways that we um, that we improve and restore and upgrade buildings after they've been created throughout their entire lifetime, which could be 80 years. 
And one one of the things that I that I learned about, I think, in 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 uh, in learning about life cycle assessment is that we need that dynamic picture of a building. If yeah. we don't have that dynamic picture of a building, if we're only thinking about the building as it exists and what is the energy that's going into it now, then we're missing out on the complete picture of the building. And quite frankly, it's not nearly as interesting to just have that static, static photograph of the building instead of the dynamic notion of it. So. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, yeah, I agree. I, that's why I brought that comment up that there's this beautiful, I think it was a Christian mystic had this quote that started out, would that we can see the world aright, right? It went on to say the light of the divine shining through everywhere at every moment. But it's interesting and kind of dismaying sometimes how mainstream cultural paradigms are actually inaccurate. And if we have an inaccurate map or an accurate, you know, understanding of the built environment, we're not going to be able to start where we are and get where we need to go. So interestingly, just queuing in on what you said, buildings lasting 80 years. Um, I'm lucky I have family lives in Switzerland. My mother lives in a 400 year old or excuse me, he lives in Basel. She lives in Basel, Switzerland, where there are 400 year old homes still yeah. occupied. Right. So right there, an 80 year building, I think we could do better. Um, but much of the energy of our world right now is going into into buildings. It's yeah. it's something like it. It's an extraordinary amount of human effort, investment and activities that are related to buildings. And I don't think that I personally understood this at all uh, before I got involved with Kate and the Carbon Leadership Forum. For, for example, um, just two materials alone, just steel and cement, it requires more, it, are responsible for more carbon emissions than all of the energy used by all commercial buildings in the entire world every year. Whoa. So just the production of steel and cement is more than all the operational energy for all the commercial buildings. In That's the world. an amazing, I mean, most, I mean, who thinks about that? It's like, wait yeah. a minute, that's just stuff, right? So what we really care about is turning on the turning off the lights when you're not using them and installing LED light bulbs. If you want to do something green, do that. But um, it turns out that a, a really a truly major part of the problem or the challenge or the opportunity is addressing <laughs> carbon. And most of us when we even when we hear the term embodied carbon, um, most of us think, well, let's see, embodied carbon carbon must be you and me because we're carbon-based life, life forms and we're sequestering carbon as we walk around. Isn't that right? Well, that is correct <laughs> in a way. But embodied carbon is it's uh, something of, it's, I think that maybe the easiest way to think about it is that it's a bookkeeping term. It's easy for us to understand, all right, so you, you pay a light bill every month and for your house and what is that light bill for it, you turn on electricity use the stove you use whatever and that's your carbon footprint but embodied carbon is a challenge it's like wait a minute why don't we take into account why don't we account for all of the carbon emissions that are related to the production distribution management construction of a thing that we own so the telephone that you have, the house that you live in, the car that you drive, all of those, uh, there's a way of understanding their embodied carbon footprint 
quite apart and co complementary to the footprint of the energy that they're that they're using as you as you drive or walk or or live in live, live in your house. Yeah, yeah, I, I, beautiful. Uh, you know, the I think what really I want to go back to one just two quick things. One is you said the challenge, right? The problem, the challenge, and it is so easy to just stop there. But I love that you amended and said and the opportunity, right? It's it's the flip side of the same coin, right? The problem we're facing, the challenge we're facing, you flip it over and it's an opportunity. And I really th think and hope that society will actually respond better to moving toward the future that, that you know, a future of abundance. And um, so you're also pointing to, you know, when we think about the upfront carbon, you're also pointing to the fact that the upfront carbon is carbon that's being emitted in the atmosphere now just in the production of the resources to make these buildings. And you rightly point out, you know, con concrete and steel, right? Glass could also be in there as a high embodied material. And you just mentioned you were in Chicago yeah. uh, recently. Um, canyons of concrete, glass and steel, right? Oh. This is what we do as, as a society. And we've done it for a long time. And we have done it much of that time unaware that it was a problem, right? right? It's It simply was us extracting resources and building and creating human thriving. And now there's a new path. We need to kind of refocus. And so thinking about now versus in the future, um, it's going to be a chaotic, bumpy ride. I, yeah. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. And it is also true that it seems that society is in the early, well, I guess we're in the mid-transition away yeah. from fossil fuels toward a global economy based on renewables and that at least in the on the grid side solar and wind those are by industry for profit market right. transitions so that's somewhat of an inexorable force it know, is an inexorable please. force but it's also a relatively new configuration of the, of the challenge right it was believe it or not it was just like within the last five years when we hit a tipping point in, in which it actually became less expensive, more economical, cheaper to build new capacity for clean energy than for dirty energy. That I say yeah. dirty energy, I'm, I'm essentially talking about energy based on fossil fuels like oil and coal. Yeah, yeah. So the carbon comes from deep under, underground and it ends up in the sky. It actually <laughs> makes a lot more sense and can be far more profitable for an, an energy company to build a solar wind farm, a, a solar farm or a wind farm, um, creating a, a, a much different and much better kind of energy than it would be to create a new a new coal plant uh, to, to create coal-fired power, power generation. So... I think I want to really double down on a, on the word that you used a minute ago, um, opportunity, right? It's like, well, I'll just, I, you know, we could go any, any number of ways from there because there are so many examples of how yeah, it is an opportunity, but I'll just, uh, I'll just mention one thing right now because I just recently learned more about it. Um, there's a, a project hosted by architecture 2030, uh, the architectural firm or the architectural think tank um, that was headed, that was created by Ed Masria and, and now yeah. co-led by Vincent M Martinez. And there's a, a one of their newest project projects um, 
is called, I think it's called climate smart uh, landscape. And so the, the, the idea is essentially, what if we could have buildings that are far more beautiful, far more, uh, far more effective at storing carbon, uh, far, um, far more, uh, far, far happier places for human beings to have to, to inhabit and stored more carbon than any a typical other building. And the answer is, what if you thought of the entire landscape of the building as being potentially helpful in storing in helping the building be uh, have a low carbon footprint? And the answer is, Absolutely. oh, my gosh, you can actually you can live in a garden. You can live in a in a in a place that's surrounded by plants and by swales and by trees and by um, by a you can live in a place that's so more so much more pleasurable to be in an environment that really supports human imagination and human human thriving and and social equity and all kinds of things if you're paying attention to the entire building in the context of the landscape that it sits in. Yeah, it, yeah, this gets back to the river idea in the sense that we tend, we as beings tend to think of ourselves as there's nature and then there's us. <laughs> we forget that we are part of planetary ecosystems and that we rely on them and that the buildings that we live in are too. They, they are resourced from the environment and they emit into the environment. Yeah, I love it. So you, you mentioned interesting, interestingly, the tipping point about five years ago with you know grid parity, the cost of generating a kilowatt hour of electricity from uh, fossils to renewables. And yet you were also part of the founding of CLF, Carbon Leadership Forum. When did that happen? That, that was before five years ago. Right? Yeah, I was, I, I was not actually there at the founding at all. Um, Kate Simone okay. was. And I, I think um, our origin story told so well by Kate is that she and a few other self-described carbon nerds who, um, who were starting to know each other were all asking the same question like, well, we all know a great, this is only about 13 years ago, by the way, but we all know a great deal about ener the energy use of buildings. We all know a lot about operational carbon what we think of today as the green building movement began in the early in the late 80s and early 90s with the founding of the U.S. Green Building Council with David Gottfried and others. And then uh, and the the um, the beginning of the LEED cert certification program for buildings uh, was again in the in the 90s. And so for a good, you know, 30 years or so, we've been working on the problem of how do you understand the impact of operational carbon? How do you understand the energy footprint of a building? We know a lot about yep. that. But so these, as I said, these self-described carbon nerds from several different companies and from research institutions basically got together and said, don't we need to really figure out what, it, what the actual footprint of building materials and construction is? Wouldn't it wouldn't it be great if we actually were able to put put together a complete, a total balanced carbon picture, including both operational carbon and embodied carbon? 
And if we could do that, don't you think we might be able to help drive change across really transformative change across the biggest industry on the planet, which we know is the, is the source of a lot of carbon emissions. And so uh, they started out and for the first several years of the, of the carbon leadership forums existence, they were pretty much voices crying in the wilderness, just working on the basic stuff to understand how all of these things fit together. And it was when I met Kate Simonin, um, well, it was uh, 2017, and I met her in a meeting at the University of Washington where people were talking about new technologies that might be available to address climate change. And I said, well, in the meeting, we introduced ourselves and I, you know, in, in my turn to speak, I said, well, I'm really interested in in understanding what's the business case for addressing climate change. And, I, and I'm convinced that, that uh, whatever we do has to be part of a movement. It has to be a lot of people thinking and acting together in what we think of as a collective impact initiative. And Kate's response uh, when, when it came her time to introduce, introduce herself was to say, so Andrew, are you aware that buildings are the biggest products on the planet and let me tell you a little bit about embodied carbon. And so my, uh, it felt like I was, uh, you know, beginning, uh, beginning <laughs> with my going back to school with, with my new teacher. And since then I've been in a, on a const, constant, constant, uh, drive to learn more. Um, but so the, the idea was, um, I think developing this, the first idea that collectively we had, I think was let's develop a theory of change. What does it take to actually transform the building industry? And we came up with three components of the strategy. The first, uh, the first component had to be tools and data. That is, if you don't know how to measure the problem, if you don't know how to, how to uh, make decisions based on the, on the actual problem, then you can't change it. Mm -hmm. if, if you can't measure it, you can't change it and you can't move the, move the needle. So, and we want to move mm -hmm. the needle. We want to be confident that we're making a big difference. So first of all, data and tools. And in 2017, the Carbon Leadership Forum came up with its very first um, benchmark project for whole building LCA of complete buildings. And it was the first attempt to kind of gather the life cycle assessment data and reports on a thousand buildings somewhat randomly because we didn't have any control over how the how the data was developed or, or collated or even um, even understood but we had the first kind of effort to to do that and then um, let's you know it's an important to be to be able to to measure specific materials not just whole buildings so to do that um, there's something called an EPD or an environmental product declaration. So, so any manufacturer of any product, not just uh, for building materials, but any product can, can, can develop a third party uh, created um, scientifically verifiable statement of uh, a scientifically accurate and verified statement of the embodied carbon footprint of a material and then publish that. And if you've got, in, if you've got a, an EPD for a whole lot of 
different kinds of products and different products that compete with each other in the market, you can think about creating a tool that analyzes all of those, all of those products and their footprint. And that was back six years ago. That, 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 that was the idea six years ago. It was, let's see, 2019 in the fall that we were able to release the tool that, um, that was developed incubated by the carbon leadership forum. It's called EC3 or the, in, or the embodied carbon and construction calculator. Yeah. And the EC3 tool, um, was, it was essentially a tool that, that was available free of charge, freely available, open source, open access tool for architects and engineers. It was based on a database of EPDs of, of, uh, 80 different types of building materials. And um, over the last three, almost three and a half years now, it seems that's kind of amazing to think. But three and a half years later, there is a database. It's a, it's got um, t many tens of thousands of EPDs in it. The, there is a tool. The tool is now being used by close to 50,000 building designers in the world, uh, especially architects and engineers, but also construction companies and 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 uh, and real estate uh, investors and developers who want to understand the footprint of their buildings, and it's being uh, it's now being managed by and controlled and developed further by a, a new nonprofit organization called Building Transparency, and and yeah. they are driving its development along with several other tools, uh, just providing an amazing contribution to the to the industry. Um, we're really happy that uh, that that organization has really taken off and is is uh, continuing the the adventure with EC3. Yeah, I'm making a little asterisk yeah. here in in my notes. Um, I would love an introduction and in, in interview this. Well, folks. we should get uh, Stacy Smedley on on uh, on the podcast for sure. She would be just a, a she has led the development of that tool since the beginning and she can, she's the executive director of building transparency now. So the first leg of that theory of change was tools and data. And the second leg of, leg of it is we can't, we know that we can't just count on the market to drive the kind of transformative change that's necessary. The market needs a bit of help. And the help that it needs is policy from governments at all levels, from local, state, national, and international bodies to drive a behavior that really matters and to help new things come into the market and be able to compete successfully with the market leaders that are already there that aren't, aren't as, um, as sensitive to the carbon footprint of the material. Mm -hmm. And then- Love we, it. I'm, let me know if I'm talking too much here, but um, I. No, no, this is great. I actually, when you say driving behaviors, of course, my brain lights up. Like it's more than just putting a good product on the shelf. Oh my God, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's got to be about marketing and it's got to be about a yeah. bottom line decision making by people who are running profitable yeah. businesses and want them to remain profitable um, and are looking for new kinds of markets that, that they can go after. Yeah. And it's, 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 and it's be, just touching on it. It's beyond that. It's the whole cultural milieu. And what do we do as strategies for happiness as beings, you know, it's just oh very basic God, yeah. level. 
Well, you um, know, just to touch on that word culture for a second. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite podcasters is Seth Godin. And his mm -hmm. definition of, of uh, culture is people like us do stuff like this. It's kind of a, <laughs> what is our collective, common, generally unspoken set of assumptions about what is the proper, best, and amazingly perfect thing to do? We often yep. judge our own behavior by those around us. And so yeah. that's we're very relational, very relation, very relational. We are part of community. We live in community and we live in the relationships that we have. And that gets to the third leg of the of the triangle, the theory of change. And the third leg is collective impact. And what that means is that the way that change happens is in community. The way that change happens is through collaboration based on relationships. It's about the mm -hmm. collective knowledge that we have, the collective aspirations that we have, the deep drive that we have to build a world that's good, good for everybody to live in and not just for me and my family or the people who look like me or live in my community even. It's about collective impact on a global scale. And we have to be thinking about a global scale and about collective impact because that's what the industry is. There, there's very, 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 very few um, materials go into our buildings or support our lives that don't have a long supply chain that goes through several different countries and, uh, and impacts our lives in very different ways. Yep, that's, that's the river that we were referring to at the front end. Yeah, the river is vast. It, it's the whole planet. Yeah, I love it. So tools and data driving behaviors through policy. collective impact through through policy. Right. That's huge. And are you are you or CLF doing that right now? Tell, tell me about that. Yeah. So um, I, was, I was about to say a little. Oh, please. I don't want to pivot you per se, but policy is a powerful lever. What were you about to say? Well, I was I was going to get to that point it, when when I met Kate six years ago, the Carbon Leadership Forum had very small resources, almost no case, <laughs> one half-time staff person. And in the industry itself, very few people across the building industry had ever even heard of or would be able to define embodied carbon. And so there were, wow. there were no policies. Right? This basic lack of fluency there, at all. There were even... no tools really available. There was no data available or very, very little data available. The PD, the um, environmental product declarations or EPDs that were available were published virtually only in the form of PDF files that you could download and print, but you couldn't easily compare. They, they didn't have a digital format and they weren't able, you couldn't easily compare one EPD to another EPD. So you can't make policy that drives change if you don't have tools and data. You can't make policy that drives change if, unless you have a deep understanding of what is actually happening in the building industry and how does it affect the carbon footprint of buildings. And so, yeah. so all, of, all three of these things have to go together. And when the CLF started, we didn't have, um, uh, we didn't have any of that. Even six years ago, we had very little of it. And so fast forward to today, we've got you know, a paid staff of, 
of uh, I think it's eight, 17 or 18 people as of today, and a significant, the heavy proportion of those people are researchers, and they're working on a set of projects related to policy development, um, it, advice and co consultation and education for policy makers, and, it, and, uh, and they're working on, on developing the method, the tools, the data, the methodology that is required in order to shift the markets. And, um, and we're working on collective impact, bringing all of those people together in a whole variety of ways. And the MEP 2040 initiative or commitment that you just mentioned is an example of that. Um, the, the initiative. So MEP 2040 came out of the CLF research and policy initiative? Yes, it did. Um, actually, it came out of the research, the policy initiatives and the community. It was re the original idea for MEP 2040 was a number of MEP engineers who are part of the CLF community came to the staff, the CLF staff. Uh, Kate, uh, Kate Simone and I had a first meeting with a few people from one of the companies that's currently today providing, still providing leadership for MEP 2040. And they said, so we've been thinking, you know, Architects have the AIA 2030 commitment. Architectural firms are making commitments to report on the carbon footprint of the buildings uh, that they are designing. And structural, enge structural engineers have the SC 2050 commitment, which was an initiative coming from the CLF community and then a challenge issued by CLF, I think three and a half, four years ago. And there isn't anything like that quite for MEP systems, for building systems. So, and we're a bunch of MEP engineers. Wouldn't it be interesting for CLF to issue a, a formal public commitment or challenge to the industry to, to respond by making commitments to actually uh, move the needle on the carbon footprint of building material, but building materials and systems in particular. So. That's the way that it all got going uh, to an, a year and a half, I guess, two years ago. Um, and uh, the result has been kind of a bandwagon effect. And now I think as of this morning, we, we now have 70 major MEP firms internationally that have signed on and another 38 or 40 organizations uh, that are not MEP firms, but they're in the building industry as architectural oh forms gosh. or other engineering forms, uh, firms, and uh, and are providing their support. And just today, we, we had our sixth quarterly forum with uh, about 150 people from over 100 firms uh, signing on and joining in on a, on a discussion that, that I didn't, I had no idea that this topic even really existed a, a year and a half ago. But it turns out that refrigerants, the topic of this morning's uh, program, refrigerants are a really significant factor driving global warming. And they're not, it's not even about carbon. It's about refrigerants being uh, unleashed into the atmosphere, um, either yeah, by leaking yeah. from chillers or coolers or air conditioning units. Um, and then the impact of those of those refrigerants in the atmosphere on global warming, which is even, it, it's not part of the very technically, I guess, 
um, just define a notion of embodied carbon, but it's uh, heavily related and deeply integrated with, with all of them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, as we were talking about it, you know, embodied carbon is a proxy for human caused, you know, environmental degradation, right? right. Species extinction, ecosystem collapse. Um, if I remember right, Project Drawdown's number one anthropogenic impact was, in fact, refrigerant emissions. Yeah, refrigerant. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of a, a quote from Comparative Religions, because I, I attended this morning. It was tremendous. And I, I learned so much. And there's this beautiful quote. It's that the larger the continent of knowledge. So this is about refrigerants and environmental impact. The larger the continent of knowledge, the longer the shoreline of mystery. Oh, boy. And so... I left this morning just full of more questions. You know, one of the things that came up for me was a lot of the new low GWP and uh, refrigerants um, are manufactured using PFAS, these per and polyfluoroalkylene substances, and Europe is now looking to ban those. So here we are like seeking a pivot and then like, well, the direction we're starting to pivot might be also somewhat fraught. Um, yeah, I, I actually just want to go back to the, I don't want it to get past listeners like the the nod or the bow or something that we need to give you and the other people that went from no full-time staff, just people doing it in their spare time to, what did you say? It was 17 full-time policy analysts and researchers, right. something like that? Yeah, we've got- That's huge. Yeah, it's 17. Actually, I think it may be 18. It seems to be growing by the minute, um, but- that is that is huge. I, it, I'm what I'm finding is that um, there is just so much incredibly exciting work happening right now inside Absolutely. the CLF. And I, if you're interested, I could ju just list two or three major. Projects. Oh my goodness! Yes, please. So one of those uh, one of those example projects is um, well for the EC3 tool, the environment, or the rather the embodied carbon and construction calculator that's that's uh, developed by the Building Transparency Organization. The role of the CLF with that tool is that we provide the base, the material baselines that are used for all of the calculations for all the materials that are um, that are part of the database that the EC3 tool analyzes in order to provide a picture of the carbon footprint of a new building, even before it's, even before it's built. So the, the, the 2023 material baselines, we're producing a new version of the baselines on generally on an annual basis, slightly more than that, I think. But, but the, the number of materials that we're up to in, in uh, analyzing material foot or the, the baseline uh, that will be used in the tool is up to over 80, I know. Uh, you, can, you can go to the, our website and download uh, the entire very long and very complex document, but but those uh, those baselines are um, also a moving picture. It's it's not just it's not just uh, buildings that are a river. It's the material quantification of all of those materials is a river as well. It's a continually shifting and evolving and developing um, supply chain for all of these many different materials and. The materials change the way that they're manufactured has changed the baseline um, for uh, for low carbon materials should be rising should they should be getting better and better at it as they're manufactured using new method new, new methods new methodology 
in new in new places and so on. The Excellent. material baselines project is huge and it's a massive, complex document um, that um, that it, you know if you're not interested in specific material and, and a specific answer, you might uh, find a little daunting to take a look at the document. Wow. Um, secondly, materials baseline project. Yeah, the second uh, project that I I find really interesting is, uh, as I said a minute ago, we in 2017 we put together kind of uh, uh, we just gathered all the life cycle assessment um, reports from something close to a thousand buildings, um, and that was the first time anybody had tried to to get all of those whole building life cycle assessment reports in one place so that people could be Oh my goodness! To understand them, so our current project, though, um, six years later, is to to uh, engage in the development of a really rigorous um, whole building life cycle assessment benchmark project. With, you know, I, I I can't remember the number of of firms in the industry that are engaged with us in this project, but I know that it's over fifty major firms. And the result is going to be a, a really rigorous, very well structured uh, uh, benchmark for whole building LCAs that will allow thousands of projects in the future of all sizes to find a reference building that's very close to what you're doing and then, um, and then develop a whole building life cycle assessment that, that enables any development firm, any architectural engineering firm that's designing a building any policymaker to be able to say, oh, that's what the complete life cycle of that type of building ought to look like. That's the minimal level of embodied carbon footprint that it should have um, and or, or the, the quality of the embodied carbon in that building. It needs to be below a certain level. And that's what we can then use to drive policy. That's what we can mm -hmm. so you're giving people a baseline to, to aim for. Exactly. They can do their own math and see that we're well above the baseline or under. So um, a final project that I'll talk about, and, I, you know, so and cool. this is, you're going to have to just shut me up after a while because I could just talk about <laughs> Just keep going. This is good stuff. But another project that I'm really excited about, it's, um, you know what ARPA-E is? ARPA-E is a project of the yeah, Department familiar. of Energy and it's real, and it's focused on. Uh, they have a new project that was funded by um, by the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, as well um, as well as a, a previous um, a previous allocation of money a year pre a year before that. So the project is um, they put together a, a, a grant pro. The Department of Energy put together a grant program of something over a hundred million dollars. And they said, what we want to do is, would it be possible for buildings, rather than to be a great big carbon sink, to become, or, or rather to be um, a, a great big source of carbon emissions, instead to become a net sequester or storer for carbon, right? Would that even be possible? And if so, how would you do that? And part of the yeah. answer is, you develop a you you develop new, innovative biogenic materials that are created created from living organisms, um, especially plants in particular, but also uh, mycenium and 
uh, mycelium and, and other and other things, uh, algae and so on. And then what what if you could make building materials out of those things that pull pull up that that uh, create use the magic of photosynthesis to create uh, to create uh, living things and then put those things into buildings after processing. So what would that look like? So it's it's a great big grant program. And they selected the Carbon Leadership Forum as kind of the lead uh, grantor in, or grantee in the program. Our job oh my is to create the, the tools, the data, the, the methodology, and the reporting uh, that enables all of these different companies that they'll be giving money to, um, to, uh, to develop their products in order to help to get those products into the market. So the the um, the RPE program, as we call it, has I think they've got something like 20 different grantees. Each of those grantees got a, a small number of millions of dollars to develop their prototype materials that could then be quickly uh, scaled up and then brought into the market in order to transform buildings from being a carbon emitter to being a carbon sink. So this is about what are the what, how do we turn this into a solution rather than a problem? Love it. So, yeah. Yeah. Please. Well, you know, when you think about it, a building made out of algae, a building made out of mushrooms, a building yeah. made out of, right? You know, one of, one of these project, projects um, is hosted at the University of New York in Buffalo and the partner company for that, uh, for that um, effort with the University of, of New York or uh, what is it? SUNY, I guess. The State University of New York is a company called Clean Fiber. Um, and what they do is take cardboard boxes that otherwise are very difficult to recycle and turn them into either wall panels or into insulation. So it's a biogenic material. It's, um, it's far more efficient um, and far as in terms of retaining or, or suppressing the transfer of heat than traditional, um, than traditional uh, insulation, cellulose-based insulation is a really great way to store carbon in a building. Historically, cellulose insulation has been made from, from uh, newsprint and then you recycle the newsprint and, or paper, other kinds of paper into cellulose insulation. The problem with newsprint as a source is that it's a decline in resource. <laughs> right. know. On the other hand, and nobody's been, until uh, this company has been able to invent this new way of creating cellulose insulation, nobody's been, been able to figure out how to use cardboard in cellulose insulation. And as we know, cardboard is not a declining resource. It's, it's showing up on your doorstep every day. Right. But yep. what do you do and it's going to be doing more so almost for sure. Yeah. Wow. So it kind of reminds me of, of uh, the supplementary cementitious materials, you know, putting slag into concrete or things like that, where we're actually running out of those, of those products of fly ash being another one. Um, yeah. So tremendous. And, you know, when you're talking about, you know, building, building, building buildings out of that's building as a noun and a verb out of 
plants, right? Well, first of all, that's something we already do. But when you say, oh, mycelium, like mushrooms or algaes being used, and I'm remembering that Chris Magwood has this great um, like kind of metaphor where, oh, why would we use earthen, earthen materials for build buildings? You know, we know how to build buildings. But in fact, we use wood, which cups, bends, warps, twists, burns, rots, right. right? It has all these issues, and yet it's become the mainstream building material of choice. And what we really want as a species is we want to have a good quality of experience, good quality of life, and you know, hopefully ensure the same for future generations. So there should be no weddedness to, well, we've always done it this way, therefore that's the way we're going to do it. But in fact, this relationality, this looking back at the past, I mean, just look at West Virginia and their adherence to coal when it was deeply non-economic, right. um, this backward facing sort of like, son, this is the way we've always yeah. done things. Right. That is sort of what we're up against is this sort of relationality. Um, and I, mean, I just want to point out like the 1960s happened, right? Like right. there's this pent up pressure, like a log jams the flow of a river and the river calmly builds up pressure and it's folks like you and Kate, you know, somewhat positive energy folks too. We're feeling that pressure build up. We're feeling that in the form of disheartenment and, you know, frustration. And, um, and yet we're not aware that flow is going to happen again. So all these products, all these new ways of thinking about things, they're all sort of happening in the wings right now, but very soon it's going to be part of this mainstream flow. I mean, I hope and I and I truly believe that that's that's the future we're headed toward. Well, I'm going to I'm going to agree with you about that. It you know, I I want to kind of <laughs> Okay. Pardon me for not arguing, but um you know, it's part of the challenge here is when we just look at what is the scale of solutions that we have available to us and how quickly are we implementing those solutions? to address climate change. If that's the only way you think about it, and you're just reporting on what has happened in the past, what you see is a relatively shallow line of increase for solutions. And what we know is that if we're actually going to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, we need that line to be moving in the vertical direction. Yeah. So the so the challenge though is um, we tend to think, oh my God, we're not moving nearly fast enough and we need to get a lot more urgent about it. And that's completely, that's absolutely true. Yes, we do need to get a lot more urgent about it. Yes, we do need to move a lot more rapidly if we're to avoid breaching the 1.5 degrees centigrade, centigrade uh, um, average uh, global temperature that is forecast almost with certainty to create great distress and great destruction. And we're almost certain to breach it anyway, um, but we still have a chance to get to keep it perhaps under two degrees. So yeah. what is it that could potentially give us some degree of hope that we could do something important and amazing over the next relatively few years? And I, I think about a model for evolution um, that I, that I heard, uh, that I heard expressed or read expressed in a book by a Harvard evolutionary um, evolutionary scientist who talked about how does how does history actually happen? Meaning, 
how does the world change? And he used the term, I think it was Stephen Jay Gould. And he used the term, right. he used the term punctuated equilibrium. So what that means is that typically the way that things happen, punctuated. punctuated equilibrium over a period of millions of years or thousands of years or hundreds of years, the way that the world changes, the way that the planet changes, the way that human society changes is that for long periods of time, you see relatively little things taking place, relatively little change taking place from year to year. And then, as you just said, a kind of a pressure builds up. And then at a certain point, it all bursts out. And suddenly you see vast amounts of change really, fa really fast. That's the nature of political revolutions, as well as mm -hmm. scientific revolutions and cultural revolutions. That's the way things happen. And what I what I think we can see today is that there's a vast amount of underground change taking place in the building industry. People mm -hmm. are pivoting to a, an, an, a deep and urgent understanding of the challenge and of the opportunity. And I, I think what we're going to see is the entire big industry moving really, really fast now that all of that pressure has been building up for some time. And it won't be, it'll be a surprise when it happens. It won't be surprised that it happens. Yeah, I love it. Um, just to put like a specific example on it. So Building Science Podcast is sponsored by, I guess, Positive Energy. We don't have any other sponsors. And uh, we were early signatories to the MEP 2040 commitment. And uh, prior to that, we had we pretty much already committed internally to no primary space or water heating would be fossil fuel based. Simple, logical, you know, certainly um, in most of our clients climates it's unnecessary to use fossil fuels to heat the house or heat the water and yet the number of times our engineers and i have had to get on calls with installers that have been doing boilers forever and gas water heaters forever and you know there's no real incentive for them to take on you know new to them technology and risk not misunderstanding the difficulty or the cost, but, you know, curves. So you really start to like, you're, you know, you're on the other end of this zoom call and they're digging in their heels and you can just, first of all, like there's like a sense of um, kinship with them. Like, yeah, this is hard. I get it. Um, and yet it, hard doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. And then from our perspective, it is like this, we could just say fine furnace, yeah. fine boiler. And be done and, and submit the you know cd set and you know get our revenue and move on and yet we don't like we we so it's interesting how this pressure building up it's at this micro level too it's in the minds and hearts of the installers it's in the minds and hearts of of us as engineers and you know i really appreciate what people like you are doing out there you know at, at kind of a higher level i guess with clf the same thing though you're you're bearing like undaunted optimism <laughs> in the face of what really, you know, there's a lot of people in the industry that they, they sound like they're just being pragmatic, but really they're being cynical yeah. or they sound like they're being real, just realism. This is just realism, but really it's sort of this sort of pessimism. And uh, I really like the fact that there's this counterbalance to that, which is, um, you know, as we just both agree, like 
there it's it's an inexorable trend in a certain direction and of course the affluent and influential stakeholders today are going to resist it of course it's always the way it's been with oops societal shifts um yeah and just yeah please go ahead andrew i can tell you have something to comment there well i was just i was just thinking about what you just said about you know there's there's always going to be resistance there's always Mm -hmm. going to be a thousand reasons not to make a change there are always going to be a, a thousand really great reasons to keep on doing things the same way that you always have. But the impetus for this movement comes from the most surprising and fantastic places. And, and some of the people that I, that I imagine might be incredibly conservative and resistant to change are instead leaping into the forefront of change. And I'll, you know, love it. Got an example. Yeah. One example, um, just, uh, just a week ago, I was on a Zoom call with several people who are the staff of the California Construction and Industrial Materials Association. And this is, you know, for us, the California is a state in the country that has almost more building going on than anywhere um, yeah. in any other state. And for, um, for a, a really big and a really complex industry, um, it's not, you know, they're not doing things just for construction of houses and offices. They're, you know, it's the Industrial Materials Association. It's the entire supply chain uh, of, of building a manufacturer and transportation and construction uh, for all kinds of buildings in the state, as, as well as all kinds of infrastructure. So California, four years ago, I think, was it four or four and a half years ago, was the first state in the country to pass where there was a buy clean California state law passed, which required to, which required that um, that for any state funded or taxpayer funded construction project, either infrastructure or building, that any of the suppliers had to provide an EPD uh, or an environmental product declaration for the materials that they were supplying, and that that uh, the state agency that was in charge of the building project that was spending the taxpayer dollars would be required to always pick the least carbon intensive building material Hmm. and i can tell you that four or five years ago the construction industry generally in california the materials industry in california was very hesitant about addressing embodied carbon because it was unclear how this might affect their business. It was unclear uh, the the burden that it would put on their development process, their construct, their their um, the manufacturing process, and the provision of low carbon materials. And they and various people were afraid that it might leave them out of a significant pile of money if they were if they d- refused to undertake the change that was being expected. I can tell you that CalSEMA, the California Construction and Industrial Materials Association today, is on the leading edge of addressing car- uh, embodied carbon. They've got, uh, they've got devoted, dedicated staff people who are assigned to reducing embodied carbon across the industry in California. And they are really excited about partnering with the Carbon Leadership Forum and lots of other people in the building industry to do it. The idea is that we can all be, we will all have to be 
leaders in this movement. And nobody can afford to step back and say, well, you do it and I'll support you or wave at you when you when you come up with the solution. So I love it. And I do you have any insight as to why that shift is happening? And I, I would have, I would posit that they recognize that this is an inexorable societal transition and that they might as well embrace it sooner rather than later. And, you know, thought leadership, brand strength, all these things, economics. But it's, what would you say? I'd yeah. say, well, I think you've got it. I think you just hit it, hit all of those things on the head. All of them are required. It's about cultural change. It's about in, about technology, technological innovation. It's about uh, a, a change in expectations and demands by various parts of the of the of the ecosystem in in California and globally. It's about policy that requires people to produce EPDs. It's about developing the technology and the tool that allows uh, architects and engineers to actually compare digital. EPD in real time with a tool that allows them to make specific intelligent decisions about low carbon procurement for a specific material on a specific job in a specific building. Love it. And it's about understanding the the difference between policies. What, you know, there are some policies that that can require very specific things um, for a building that are uh, prescriptive. as to the materials or the systems that a building must contain. And there are other types of policies that are performative, that require the performance of a material or a building or a whole building or an infrastructure project based uh, compared to a baseline. And, and different kinds of policies can, can drive different kinds of change. So what we're talking about, uh, a word that I used a minute ago was ecosystem. It's a very complex ecosystem with lots and lots of players. And all of the components of change have to be present in the ecosystem, consciously and intentionally focused on change. And it's and it takes place in an objective environment, which provides kind of the, the ground on which we, we build the movement and make the change. And that's the status quo. And then mm-hmm. the question is, what are the catalysts that we need in order to in order to make a a real shift in the way that the entire system works. Yeah. Well, we could just keep following this down and down and down, Andrew. Um, I think I want to bring us toward a, toward an end here. Um, I had a couple of, well, one comment, I guess, related to that. It's actually as the grid cleans up energy being a master commodity, anything that's, you know, anything, any material that we extract and process and distribute, you know, transport energy is involved in that. And to the extent it can be renewable energy involved in that, that helps decarbonize the materials. Right. right. So, or decarbonize the, the LCA, the life cycle right. of the material. And I guess my, my kind of final thought, and I'll, I'll leave you to think about a, a final thought, or if you have more, we can, we can go on is, is two final thoughts. One is that we have touched on a lot of kind of branching off points, and um, I will gladly take some help from you with introductions via email to talk more about MEP 2040. Um, yeah, I'd love to talk to Kate, and you mentioned Stacy Smedley and EPDs. We talked to Gina Saganic, a healthy building network, you know, right. HPDs, 
So we'd love to get EPDs. So yes, this let's consider this like the the hub of a a wheel with spokes for topics. And I and I guess the the big thing for me, you know, so we're talking about embodied carbon and you know sort of the crunchy takeaways for people would be like be careful with concrete glass and steel be careful with refrigerants be thoughtful about your use of them recognize that there's alternatives but this podcast isn't at that level of like here's the ingredients it's more like here's the reason you should open the list of ingredients and um i read a book recently called called ministry for the future and it's a science fiction writer kim stanley robinson and he basically writes a sci-fi story that starts in the year 2023 on earth. He wrote it in 2020 or 2021 and it's intense. I mean, it, it, have you read it? You're nodding. Yes, I have read it. I love that. Book. Yeah. And his is, so I don't want to do a spoiler alert for those of you listening. If you're going to read it, uh, don't listen to this, but you know, it's probably not a surprise. The basic gist is things get really bad. Things get really painful. And then we shift and, uh, you know, personally, professionally, I think you and I both share this, you know, we're both kind of nodding right now, like, I hope we can avoid that, right? I hope that um, we can keep our eyes open as a, as a species and really bear witness and be clear in what we see, like, this is an inexorable trend. Using fossil fuels wasn't evil. It made sense until we realized it didn't make sense. And, you know, there's a ditch on the right and a ditch on the left. And we move from one, we're heading toward the other. So I just feel that really the the secret power is human caring. And uh, that's what we're tapping into. And then as soon as humans care and want to make a difference, people like you and, and Stacy and Gina, you know, so many people are creating the resources that they can go avail themselves of once they're motivated. Um, yeah. Do you have any sort of final thoughts, thought or thoughts? Oh boy. Well, or tell me, I got a question that I can help you on. Unless, unless you had something coming up, I could ask you go ahead. what, what's, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about now? What's the, what are your future projects? Those kinds of thoughts. Well, I think I want to touch on, I think I want to touch on what you said about Kim Stanley Robinson's book. Um, oh, please. Future. Um, It really does look on some days like, oh my God, we are really <laughs> screwed. Yeah. Like choosing the path of pain, yes. Uh -huh. And uh, you know whether it's you know if you were in New York um, or the East Coast last week, um, you were probably breathing oh a lot of smoke from Canadian forest fires. If you were in the Bay Area a couple of years ago, you would be breathing a lot of, of smoke from California forest fires. If you were in Washington state last summer, you'd be breathing a lot of smoke from Canadian and Washington state forest fires. And, you know, that's just one aspect of the challenge and the disaster, the ongoing kind of disaster that we're facing here. I think it is so important to pull ourselves out of this sense of impending and ongoing disaster and, mm -hmm. to, and to understand that fundamentally we have a challenge to build a world of compassion and an opportunity to build a world of compassion a world in which we really essentially understand everybody on, on the planet is my neighbor 
Mm-hmm. And there's a powerful relationship between social justice, environmental justice at the local level and climate justice at the global level. And that and the connection between the big global problem and and the and the local problem is um, it's embodied carbon. It's kind of it's right at the middle of things. Um, so on the one hand, we, we all know that environmental justice has traditionally been focused on the negative impact of manufa- extraction, manufacturing, transportation on local communities, marginalized communities, especially in, 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 in uh, BIPOC communities. Yeah. The, and resistance again that, against that negative impact. And at the climate, at, at the global level, climate justice is about understanding that the people who are most dramatically and importantly affected by climate change are the most marginalized populations, communities, countries in the world, especially in the global south, but not not uh, not only in the global south. So this is uh, it's fundamentally this question of embodied carbon is fundamentally actually a moral question, not an not and an ethical question. It's not only a technical question or a business question. And the, and the question is, are, are we going to understand that we can create a planet that works for everybody and, that, and, and creates an opportunity for diverse communities around the world to thrive, to connect, to, to communicate, to collaborate and building a future that we all wanna live in? Or are we gonna not pay attention to the opportunity to do that? And I see this whole discussion of embodied carbon as an, an enormously, just a beautiful invitation to understand my connection, our connection with each other in a global sense and our opportunity to collaborate in creating a thriving, beautiful world. So it's, uh, yes, the conversation begins by a discussion of what is the carbon footprint of concrete? What is the carbon footprint of steel? What is the carbon footprint of glass or or of uh, insulation or any number of other building materials? What is the carbon footprint of building systems like chillers and and uh, air air conditioning units and and boilers and so on? But it ultimately comes down to what is the world that we want to live in ourselves and what is the world that we want to live to our children? For me, this is like I find enormous joy and delight, just extreme pleasure that I, and, and a feeling of being deeply privileged that I get to work on, on this challenge with people like you and throughout the Carbon Leadership Forum on network and community. Wow, I, I dare not even comment on that. What a, what a beautiful place to end. I agree completely with what you're saying, right? That humans, we are extremely clever and uh, rational and intellectually powerful species. And we have emotions and those emotions should inform our actions and our behavior just as much as our intellect. Um, and so I have another personal question for you. Right? So I'm in my uh, mid slash late fifties and um you know, I guess you're a little bit ahead of me. I'm, You've got grayer hair. I'm 73 years old. Wow, dude, looking great. Um, But yeah, so what you just said at the end, I mean, this is like a personal question, Andrew, like 
um, you've earned a good retirement and you could do whatever you want. You could stop now and, you know, just go, I don't know, work on your suntan and read mystery novels or whatever it is that, but you're not. And I don't see myself doing it, but do you have a plan or is it your, is it a tapering transition? Well, you know, I am aware that I'm getting old. I mean, I'm, I'm probably more aware that I'm getting older than ever before in my life. And for me also, that means, oh, huh, time is a little bit, is somewhat limited, isn't it? And therefore more and more precious to me, Yeah. right? And so I actually think very little about, well, what happens after I'm gone? You know, I'm, I, I, I think I'm just, I'm naturally deeply embedded in this present moment and I find, and I am just in, I truly am incredibly excited about everything that's happened. Yeah. Wow. Andrew. Awesome. Thank you so much. And, and thank you all for listening. Bye-bye.